welcome to the final episode in the Inspired Thinkers series by Arate House. My name is Toby Mendelssohn, and the name of this episode is Do I Contradict Myself? Very well, I contradict myself. Now you may know that the title of this comes from one of the great American poems, which is called A Song of Myself by the 19th century poet Walt Whitman. And incidentally, the next line goes, I am large, I contain multitudes. I suppose the business of conclusions has always rather worried me. In fact, quite a lot more than the business of contradictions. To some degree, I think everything is always unfinished. So it's therefore a pretense to try and wrap things up neatly and tidily. But by way of conclusions, Whitman's two lines take me pretty close to where I want to go. That yes, I probably do contradict myself, but that is because I am large and I contain multitudes. It is, of course, quite acceptable for a poet to contradict him or herself. But philosophers? No. Philosophers are supposed to be, above and beyond anything else, logically consistent, clear, coherent and non-contradictory. That is their basic job description. So in academic philosophy, it almost doesn't matter at all what you actually say, so long as you uphold those principles of non-contradiction and consistency in speaking or writing. So as a philosopher, you can defend the most bizarre and crazy propositions, so long as your defense has clarity, consistency, and does not involve logical errors. And I don't mean to object to that approach. In fact, I greatly admire it, and to some degree, I lean on it very heavily. But I think I've always recognized the limitations of it too, in that life is itself extremely inconsistent. Reality is messy and complex. We are all large, and we all do contain multitudes. And these don't necessarily add up to something coherent and reasonable. So, for that reason, one should not be afraid of contradictions. They are a sign of encountering actual life, rather than remaining trapped in some ideal of what life ought to be. But having said that, the title of this episode is meant to be an admission of guilt. That, although trained as a philosopher, all the things that have deeply influenced me are like so many different beads on a necklace that when strung together are hopelessly inconsistent. And I suppose there are two ways to look at this inconsistent necklace. And I think they mirror two very different ways of doing philosophy, 
or even defining what philosophy is or ought to be. The first way is to look at the necklace as a problem to be ironed out. Ironed out with more precision, more analytical attention, more precise reasoning. It's a technique of reductionism. The sense that the necklace is simply too rough, so let's smooth it out. So such a technique would say, you know, Aristotle really should not sit alongside Nagarjuna in some kind of series. We should chop the head off Aristotle and chop the legs off Nagarjuna and just have one torso bead, which we can call, quote, ancient realism and anti-realism. So it's a kind of narrowing down of things so that there is a definite clarity and coherence. The second way is to look at the necklace as something rich and fruitful as it is, and possibly be inspired to add even more beads, and then even more, so the whole thing gets rather wild and unruly, but also offers fascinating possibilities. So it's sort of an enlarging process, and one which doesn't have a particularly robust concern for order and consistency. And I suppose what I'm saying is that I've always appreciated the rigour and the discipline of the first approach, but I've always been somewhat more wedded to the second. I think, to some extent, I try to write in accord with the first approach, but tend to think and live more in accord with the second. And actually, I remember one subject that I took as an undergraduate, which was simply called, What is Philosophy? And it turned out that every philosopher that we looked at had a very different answer to that question. But I always had the sense that all of them fell into one of those two camps, of either wanting to tidy everything up, get rid of vagueness, purge inconsistency, and just concentrate on a nice, neat, narrow little sphere where real problems can be safely defined and definitely solved. Or of rampaging off into all sorts of wild and crazy spaces, into the vastness of human history, like Hegel, or into the messiness of human will and desire, like Nietzsche and Freud. And I suppose you have gathered by now that I've mainly used philosophy to open things up rather than narrow things down. You might say to generate questions rather than providing definitive answers. And so I hope if this series has achieved anything, it is this. My agenda has never been to convert you to a particular thinker or tradition of thinking or to provide answers to particular problems, but rather to invite you into the terrain of that thinking and then let you swim in your own direction, even if that happens to be directly away. If I have tried to prove anything, it is that any human life can be intensely enriched by jumping into the waters of inspired thinking and just swimming.
even if you sink or tread water for a good while before you swim. And it turns out that the thing that I was most reticent about in doing this series has been the thing that most listeners have enjoyed the most, and this is the personal or narrative dimension. So as I weave this final episode onto the contradictions themselves, I'm going to remain faithful to this personal domain. And this amounts to a rather shocking admission that these contradictions are not principally on the level of ideas. They are not necessarily or purely logical contradictions. They are contradictions which coalesce and express themselves through the way I live. So I was not stretching the truth when I claimed in the introduction that I am a walking, talking contradiction. But I suppose I want to claim that there is a kind of universality about this. That the I, in this case, the Toby Mendelssohn who is speaking now, is somewhat of a metaphor for all of us. And that I think we are all messy contradictions, albeit of different kinds and of different degrees. Simply because we are all large, and we do all contain multitudes. And I think the first serious contradiction to have emerged in this series is that between a modern European notion of individuality, or we could call it moral agency, against the more Buddhistic notion of anatman, which translates to no self, and its connection to the ideas of emptiness and interdependence. So that former idea is found especially in Nietzsche and Kant, and the latter in Nagarjuna and the Kudjus, and maybe to a lesser extent in Marx. And then we could say Buber and Aristotle probably fit somewhere in the middle there. If you grow up, like I have, in an Anglo or European culture, you don't need to be taught any notions of individuality. Those notions are given to you in all manner of ways before you even learn how to dress. Which is to say that the notion of individuality is so deeply ingrained, so naturalised, so much a part of the very structures of Western life, of family, of economics, of politics, of culture, that I think most people simply take it to be an ontological truth. And in fact, it's one of the great joys in life to teach sociology to undergraduates and then watch their eyes pop open week after week as they come to realise that the premise of individuality which they took to be so natural and real and immutable is in fact nothing more than a premise and one that is indeed highly questionable. So my attraction to Buddhist thought has always been, to a large degree, about undoing that premise of individuality and replacing it with a lived experience of interdependence and of relationality. 
And with 20 plus years of meditation and scholarly knowledge of Buddhist philosophy, I remain deeply committed to the view that individuality is, in the final analysis, a very deep fiction. And one which is especially problematic when the fiction is not seen. Yet one of the curious things about my philosophical journey is that the more deeply I've gone into Buddhist thinking and practice, the more I have actually found room for some sense of individuality, and not a mere phantom trace, a robust, dynamic and intense sense of it. And actually, I do not think that this is contradictory, even a little bit, with Buddhist philosophy. The Buddhas still eat lunch, they still wash, they perceive, they think, they apprehend, they feel. No solid self abides in all of this, but it all still happens. And the point is that it happens more powerfully and more directly if no self abides. Which is simply to say that we are so many little processes. And all of these little processes change us. So we do have a self, but it is dynamic and moving, not static and innate. It is relational and dependent, not autonomous and independent. And the point, I suppose, is that I do not see thinkers like Nietzsche and Kant saying anything particularly at odds with that. And indeed, this perhaps extends to most Western philosophers. You have to actually get to a very deep and refined level before you can pick up some part of a Western view and say, aha, that might be expressive of an innate or intrinsic self. But usually even that is questionable or debatable. So, on the level of ideas, I don't think there is any kind of contradiction and probably not even much inconsistency. But on the level of lived experience, rather large contradictions emerge. Big, unruly, problematic, difficult ones. And that I think my life actually unfolds right in between some kind of chasm between Western notions of individuality and Buddhistic notions of emptiness and interdependence. And actually, I think they emerge most acutely in the political and economic spheres and coalesce especially around the idea of ownership and acquisition and wealth. So to speak generally about a Western approach, outside of the socialist tradition, it's considered virtually an intrinsic part of human nature to acquire possessions and to build up personal wealth. You know, to the extent that this is almost taken to be the very purpose of life. 
Whereas the Buddhistic approach sees that as the essential problem of human life. The problem of grasping to possessions, of being attached to things, and of striving for personal gain. So my life is very much anchored on that kind of contradiction. I sometimes wish I could be a Buddhist monk and just own a begging bowl and some robes and live very simply in a forest hut. Or that we all lived on a more socialist footing and shared our resources more freely and equally. But these wishes go firmly against the grain of our reality, which is deeply shaped and structured by the idea of private ownership and individual acquisition. So to rub against this is to put your idealism ahead of reality. And this is indeed something I have regularly done and perhaps am doing now. It's very, very difficult to find a middle way here. And so the contradiction abides. In the final analysis, it might only be resolved by genuinely abiding in the Buddhist middle way, the Madhyamaka, which is the inseparable space of dependent arising and emptiness. Because only when the mind dwells there is it impossible to have a static, independent self and equally impossible to really possess things. It is a mind of total non-attachment, total non-possession, a mind which necessarily gives rather than takes. But such a middle is very hard to find. And where there is a wandering in and a wandering out, contradictions will definitely be manifest. The next major contradiction is that between rationalism or reason and romanticism or mysticism. I mentioned quite a lot through the series that when I was younger, I was rather expressly a romantic and probably looking for some form of mysticism. And I was attracted to philosophers who espoused anti-rationalist views. Especially Nietzsche, who I did an episode on. And that led rather directly to the postmodern waters of Deleuze and Foucault. And the psychoanalytic tradition of Freud, Kristeva, Lacan and so forth. As well, the influence of Martin Buber permeating all the way through, has been some form of humanistic mysticism. And the way I read Buddhism for a long time certainly moved me in that direction too. So in the series, I often cashed all of that out as some kind of admission of conceit or arrogance or dogma, a symptom of youthful ignorance. An admission that the denial of reason was ultimately a very big illusion that came with some rather heavy costs. So I talked about a big rationalistic turn, which I found through encountering the great Tibetan scholar Tsongkhapa, 
which moved me closer to Kant and earlier rationalist thinkers such as Maimonides and Aristotle. So somewhere along the line, I really signed up to reason and became very hostile to the many different threads which attempt to disrupt or criticize reason. So there was a certain point in the whole journey where I felt like I actually became a philosopher. Not in terms of adopting the identity of it, but simply becoming someone who was wholly committed to good reasoning and in the same breath, willing to abandon any idea or belief or value which does not survive good reasoning. And in the same breath, I became very, very addicted to arguments. And I went from being rather a sensitive creature who didn't much like criticism to being someone who loved good criticism more than any kind of compliment. And that I grew to love disagreement and intellectual contestation. For in it lay the beauty of a dialectic. So it looks a bit in this series like this particular contradiction is rather formally resolved. Simply by saying that reason trumps all of the irrational threads of postmodernism, psychoanalysis, mysticism and romanticism. But maybe it's not quite so simple. In the end, my true fidelity is to something that I would have to call yogic experience. And this is simply beyond the limits of reason. But reason is necessary to find that space. And I'm rather close to the view that that space is itself what Chogyang Trumpa has called basic intelligence. In Sanskrit, this is the experience of prajna, a kind of crisp, clear, penetrating gnosis. The implication is that the definition of reason can perhaps be widened to take us very close to this experience. Which is to say that the fruits of yogic practice are not some blind or irrational mysticism or a kind of romantic idealism. They actually involve tremendous clarity, pristine awareness and something like a true knowing. Hardly too far away from the power and potency of philosophical reason. Amidst Western currents, maybe this position is closest to Martin Heidegger, who is probably the most influential European philosopher of the 20th century. Heidegger was someone that I studied a lot, and his ideas have always been simmering pretty near to the surface of my mind. But now maybe I can see that his conception of truth and of being is actually very, very close to what I am, to use a Heideggerian phrase, disclosing. And I suppose it's a little late for that admission. If I could start the series again, I probably would do an episode on Heidegger. And maybe at the end of it, I would call myself Heideggerian.
And for those of you who have no idea what the hell I'm talking about, it means very simply that truth is disclosed first. That's the very essence of Dasein or of our being. And then reasoned about or spoken about second. That means the unconcealing of truth precedes language and logic. So as far as the contradiction between reason and romanticism or mysticism goes, I suppose I am in various ways signed up to both. Sometimes I am more firmly on one side or the other, but always I am carrying them both and deploying one or the other when the context is right. And so on to the final and most devastating contradiction of them all. The political contradiction. And actually that ought to be plural because I espouse political contradictions just about every time I speak. There have been political ideas all the way through this series. Most explicitly in the Marx and Aristotle episodes, but more subtly in Freud, in Buber, in Kant and in Nietzsche. And actually my whole PhD thesis was defence of the proposition that Nagarjuna's notion of emptiness has explicit political entailments, so it's there in the Buddhist episodes as well. But how this all fits together into a coherent politics is rather a dirty question, because I'm not sure that it really does. I joked a little about being a liberal, a socialist and a conservative all at the same time in the Aristotle episode. But let me admit quite seriously here that my politics is a bit of a dire mess at the moment. It is suffering from so many terminal contradictions that it probably is best just to keep silent. And I think the simplest way to frame the central problem is to say that I have inadvertently become a left-hating lefty. So, I've always been more or less on the left of the spectrum. I've always been broadly egalitarian and broadly social or communal in orientation, and more or less progressive in terms of social values. But I really hate what the left has become. And I hate it more than I hate what the conservatives are saying and doing. Well, that's probably going too far. I sort of hate them both, very cleanly. And then, to make matters really bad, I hate the politics of hate, in whatever forms it appears. Which means that I get hoisted on my own petard the very moment I have any kind of political thought. I just reject everyone's position and then I reject myself. And I'm left to conclude, it's all poison. Well, why might this be? Well, the times are poisonous. I think most of us see this. And maybe it's the case that as soon as you enter the times, you necessarily enter poison and automatically become somewhat poisonous yourself. So it follows that political quietism might be a very attractive option here. 
the basic strategy of avoiding politics altogether, being apolitical, retreating into music or literature or art or nature, even perhaps silence and meditation. It is tempting, maybe even extremely tempting. But it is also, in my opinion, a categorical illusion, because political quietism is itself a political position. It's one of accepting the status quo and being complicit in all the pernicious things that you refuse to engage with. So what is one to do? How does one get free of the poison and make things better without becoming a shrill, poisonous, contradictory mess? Is that even possible now? Well, there is something to be said for simply accepting oneself as a shrill, poisonous, contradictory mess, because it is at least honest. But I do think there is a way out. And it's not radical. It's not exciting. It's not sexy. It's simply a basic strategy of returning to the basic dignity of human beings. Not appealing to rights necessarily, but simply acknowledging the basic intelligence of every human being. Upholding the basic belief that there is that basic intelligence in everyone. Alongside a kind of strangeness or confusion. So this thread emerged, especially in the Buber, Kant and Freud episodes, and my rather eccentric way of reading them. So I think the right response to these times is as a first principle, recognising and respecting the intelligence and moral agency of each person, and refusing to be drawn into a friend-enemy kind of dynamic. And I think this implies, as a form of political praxis, a deep and genuine listening. A listening without speaking. I think this is something we've all fundamentally forgotten how to do. We've all developed the rather vile habit of speaking without listening. And that seemingly has a lot to do with the digital age, which by any measure is turning out to be catastrophic for a sane and dignified and wise politics. Now, I'm not saying it's easy to do this. It's very hard as a trained political philosopher to resist asserting my politics, asserting my normative values, asserting my vision, and then taking action to bring it all into being. Somehow or other, I feel inclined to repudiate my background as a political philosopher in these times. Because I'm no longer interested in the business of asserting my values and my views. And I'm more interested in simply shutting up and trying to listen to what people are really struggling with. And then letting the politics emerge out of that listening. Not telling them what their struggles ought to be. Now suppose at some point one must speak 
and enter the sphere of contested values. But I suppose what I'm saying is that what is said at that point and what is valued must truly emerge from that genuine listening. And I don't think, despite all of my philosophical work, that I have arrived at that point yet. That's what I'm attempting, and that's the way I'm trying to steer my ship free of the contradictory cauldron of poison that is our lived global reality. Now you may have noticed this actually entails another rather stark contradiction. Because actually in this instance, you're the ones listening, and I'm the one speaking. But I am trying. And actually I'd be very interested to listen to you if you wish to respond to any of the ideas in the series, in support or in critique. And that's actually a nice segue to the final part. We've dealt with three pretty savage contradictions now. That between the individual and the relational self, that between rationalism and romanticism, and that of the minefield of political contradictions embodied by this human being, Toby Mendelssohn. The series is thus drawing to a close. And I want to formally end by shifting gears, speaking a little about the kind of work we're doing here at Arate House, where we're heading, what kind of content is coming up, how you can connect with us, how you can contribute or help us out if you feel so inclined. So Arate House was founded in 2016 by myself and Dr. Ruth Fitzpatrick. And as you know by now, I've been trained as a philosopher, and Ruth has been trained as a sociologist. Both of us have been interested in combining a kind of intellectual potency and rigour that academia demands and provides, alongside a more contemplative or meditative approach to the most fundamental questions of life. So Arate House is really an expression of those two things of great and inspiring ideas, such as we have covered in this series, and of robust, practical, efficacious, yogic or meditative or spiritual practices. So we think you need both to live a good, flourishing life, and that collectively we need a lot more of these rather scarce and precious things. So we founded Arate House to be principally an independent and not-for-profit educational institution. And at present we offer online courses and webinars and we're hoping in the future to have enough resources to run material classes, seminars and lectures. So if you enjoyed or want to go more deeply into the terrain covered in this series, it might be worth considering taking the online course which we offer and which I have designed called the Masters of Philosophy, and that's available for download at our website at aratehouse.com.au. And I'm also going to be doing some webinars based on this material, so stay tuned to the website for the details of that. At this early stage of our development, we're especially interested in connecting with people who share our loose and open-ended vision, 
And that basically means anyone who's animated by good ideas and perhaps also energized by a kind of contemplative or spiritual practice. So please don't hesitate to get in touch with us, either, either by phone or email. We're a small organization and we really like to keep things very personal. So we'd love to hear from you. And certainly feel free to let me know what you thought of the series. As I mentioned earlier in the episode, there did come a point in my philosophical journey where I really began to enjoy criticism. So please feel free to be critical. And actually, I'm never very good with compliments, so please be very careful with those. And if you enjoyed the podcast series, please consider donating to us. Even a small amount is helpful. So we're trying to offer as much high-quality material, either for free or as cheaply as possible. And so donations really are an excellent way to help us meet our costs. You can find the link for that on our website. And that's it for me in this series. I do sincerely thank you for listening. I hope it set you off into interesting directions. And may we meet again soon. Thank you.